1: The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
2: Stephanie Shriok's political sensibilities were forged in the labor struggles of her home city of Butte, Montana, in the 1980s. And from there, she became one of the great organizers in democratic politics. Her experience included uh, managing uh, several successful campaigns for the United States Senate, as a pioneering finance director for the Watershed Howard Dean campaign in 2004. And now she's president of EMILY's List, an organization that was formed three decades ago to encourage women to run for office. Well, it appears now that women don't need a whole lot of encouragement to run for office. We've seen women running all over the country. And the question is, is there a pink wave coming? I asked Stephanie about that and many other things when she dropped by the Institute of Politics last week. Stephanie Shriak. <laughs> it's good to be with you and good to see you again. Um, Thank you. You uh, you don't come from a particularly political family.
1: No, I don't.
2: Tell me, tell me about your folks.
1: It's great. Well, you know, I grew up in Butte, Montana. Uh, parents of well of good Midwesterners. My dad's uh, born and raised in this little town called Mountain Lake, Minnesota. My mom uh, was from Mason City, Iowa. And, if you know anything about Minnesota and Iowa, they hate each other, so they overlooked mm-hmm. their differences and got married and
0: right on the uh, border there. right
1: on the border, yeah. right? And then they they moved uh, moved out to Butte, Montana, where I was raised. And the funny thing about about the whole family is that we never talked politics now i I was very active. I was just that. I was that kid, right? I just wanted to change everything. I ran for student government all the several time. several times, right? Several times, not, not
2: successfully.
1: Not very until often. the last,
2: <laughs> right? So you ran for student government president.
1: I did. I tried to be class president uh, a few times, and. I just was not convincing to my classmates. I just it didn't work.
2: Did you did you um, did you win ultimately?
1: Well, I figured something out as one of my first most important lessons uh, of campaigning. I realized if I ran for student body president my junior year, the electorate changed.
0: Ah. And it
1: wasn't just my class, but the freshmen and sophomores were gonna vote too. And so then I focused my entire campaign to the freshman and sophomore class. Mm-hmm. And in fact... Expanding the electorate, I, it Really, that expanding the electorate deal is important. Yeah. <laughs> and I learned my lesson. The other lesson I learned is I got the endorsement of one of the younger sisters of one of my opponents. Oh. Oh, yeah. No, and this was tough. And that was, was telling... It was, you there's know... nothing else, it was a psychologically bruising a, that's thing right. to you do. You know, there's one thing being a sister, but <laughs> then I learned about the sisterhood. <laughs> and that was it. And I, I did... I did become the Butte High School Student Body President um, my senior year. Uh-huh. Uh, yes, yeah, so that's I love that stuff. Like I, I, I Why? always wanted to do that. I, you know, my parents raised me to you know do anything I wanted to do. They really. I'm lucky that way. I get that. Uh, there wasn't any sense of. Like, there's any doors closed to you. And as a young woman, I don't even think I even thought about the fact of how lucky I was to have parents like that. Uh, and so I think that was a big, you know, just a big part of it. And I was a type A kid, and I just wanted to do a little bit of everything. You know, my mother was um, was a Democrat, but my mom and I were so certain that my dad uh, who is a he's a sportsman? He hunts and fishes. He's a gun owner. He owns quite a few, actually. Yeah. Uh, Vietnam veteran. Yeah. Uh, we just clearly was a Republican, and so my mom you being never a good inquired? no, because my mom they're Midwesterners, and my mom's With like, it. "Don't rock the boat here, honey. Mm. We're just not going to talk politics." That's great. And I'm like, okay, you know, I was I was very dutiful, and and not until I went to college. And I was, I was dating a Republican at the time. This was Mankato State, Minnesota, uh-huh. um, where I was in school. And my Republican boyfriend walks up to my dad and says, oh, how do you put up with this liberal daughter of yours? And my father says, oh, I'm just really proud of her. I said, well, dad, that's really nice, you know, being a Republican at all. And my dad says, are you kidding? I've been a Democrat my years, entire huh? life.
2: All those and years. And
1: then here's the, here's the big one. He says, it's your mother that's the Republican. <laughs>
2: So well, that's that's, that's what right happened. It. Well, yeah. we
1: all came out of the Democratic closet. We're like, we're all Democrats, and then we talk more about politics.
2: <laughs> so let me ask you a question about your dad, and you, you mentioned he's a Vietnam veteran. He yes. was a sportsman and yeah. a hunter, and all of that. Um, talk about that the gun issue because it's mm-hmm. it's very much on people's minds now. And yeah, I don't. Sure I think is. we kind of talk past each other. I've, I think I've told the story here before about. Barack Obama, when he was a state senator, was having a debate with a guy from downstate on a gun issue. And he said, listen, I understand that you grew up hunting. Your father grew up hunting. This has been passed down from generations. And it's 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 important to you. And it's But he said, I come from a place where like, mothers sit by the window and worry about whether their kids are going to come back from school alive because there's so much— Gunplay on the streets," he said, and he said, "There has to be a way to preserve your rights and your culture and all of your traditions, and save these kids. And um, but we don't have those discussions like that, you know. We're we're, we're, it's a very shrill discussion, and it becomes more so as you see these uh, massacres, like the one we saw. In, uh, Again. In, in Florida and then, and then the one at, at just just as we speak just this week at YouTube right. So, um, but, but, it, but I want you to talk about it from the other direction first of all did you go hunting when you were a kid I,
1: did, well, I very proudly took my hunting safety course uh, I mean I couldn't tell you exactly who was sponsored by but it probably I would not be surprised if it was not paid for and sponsored by the National Rifle Association because mm-hmm. that's that's what they do all over the country uh, I took it at 11 because you could get your permit at 12. So you were ready to go hunting. And and then I went a couple times. <laughs> it was so cold and there was so much snow that I was like, I don't know. And I went to mom like, I don't do I have to do this hunting thing? Is it okay if I get out of it? So that ended my head. I loved to fish. I was much better at the fishing thing. Uh, but I grew up in absolutely in a hunting household. And it wasn't that I I just didn't like to be that cold honestly that was the whole problem for me we grew up eating game you know I hardly ever had beef in the house ever I mean we grew up eating venison and elk and ducks and pheasants and that was just that's who we were and and um, sounds kind of good actually. It was really good yeah. and I and we still do I go I go home uh, my dad lives in Kansas now and uh, and what's great is like the the freezer still filled with that but you're right we do we do talk past each other in this um you've managed campaigns in places where
2: this is this was a well montana Montana,
1: where you know it is it really is part of the culture uh and you know i had a shotgun all through myself i had a shotgun all through high school and you know my dad still has it at the house and I've lived outside of Washington, D.C. for a while now, so I don't have the shotgun. Uh, so I never really thought growing up about it. It was just a different time, too, in the '70s and the '80s, uh, that you know everybody had guns growing up. And everybody was respectful. Of those guns. You know, that's why we had to go take the hunter safety course. Or mm-hmm. you sat down with dad and you were taught how to clean and put together and take care of it. Like every and step in fairness, of it. Like it's a real but it's a culture. It's a but I thing. but this I is think, Montana.
2: Right. But I, this isn't Chicago. And is still but it is still true. That's probably still true. You bet it is. And so and
1: I mean my nephew's going through the process right now. You right. know, he's gonna he'll learn the same things I learned from from his dad.
2: And yet you read these polls and you see among gun owners, there's, there, are, there is a majority for universal background checks, yes. for example. Yes, and I think that's
1: where we've got to get out of the extreme debate here, which is not the only issue we have this in, and try to find some common ground. And the background check piece of this seems completely sensible. I mean, my father is not an NRA member. I can't speak to if he ever has been. My uncle is. Uh, but they're very open to having some common sense laws put in place uh, that, that protect people, with the background check being the easiest of those all. So why we can't come together on something as simple as a universal background check, I don't know. Well, it can get messier along the way, and I know they feel like it's a sl- you know it's a slippery slope. Right, is the argument, right? But how much of so, it is we've got to have some common sense? How much of it is that the here?
2: NRA? I mean, I, you know, um, growing up, I, I you know, you, you'd think of it as the voice for hunters and sportsmen, uh, but Absolutely. it's uh, but. But it's also a big-time lobbying group for the gun industry, which doesn't want any restrictions uh, that would impinge on their bottom line. And it's become sort of a, uh, a rallying place for these um, folks who, who believe that we should be armed to, against the hegemony of a of an overweening government, which is kind of crazy because there's no weapon you're going to buy, even an AK-47 or an an AR-15 or whatever, that is going to stop a tank tank or a plane. But there is that element of it. But I don't think that's the majority of gun owners.
1: No, and and I, I would guess that it's not the majority of members of the NRA. I mean, you talked about look, it, it is the voice, the National Rifle Association, for so long is the voice of, you know, hunting and fishing and all the, you know, sort of that and really sportsmen, the hunting side, not so much the fishing, not the angler side of it, but the hunting side of it. Uh, and a lot of folks that I'd run into in Montana when I was managing John Tester's race, or even in Minnesota. Uh, they're members because there's benefits to being a member of mm-hmm. the NRA and you get access to you know interesting and new equipment mm-hmm. or you get a read information uh, that makes you better at you know at hunting and and so so much of it is a, that benefit if you separate that and say boy it's a ben- it's a benefit to those folks that's what they're looking for to me, like that's an that's a good association. The lobbying power, though, and the un, unwillingness to have any conversation—that's unacceptable. And that that is really where, um, where I think they've gone. Just sort I think of we're off also reaching a, a, a
2: tipping point where it's, and you can see, and I think yeah. the Parkland kids get a lot of credit for this, but yeah, you can sure see do. that. Uh, uh, in what happened in Florida and some other legislatures, what just happened in Vermont—that uh, it's just becoming untenable to 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 hold the line and say mm-hmm. we're not going to do anything. That's that That's seems right. like an increasingly difficult position. But you know, as you say, it's not just on guns. There are so many issues on which right. we run to our corners, and I think it's one of the problems we have in, in the country. I would, I think, the president himself is uh, deeply. Uh, Responsible in that he exploits these uh, these divisions uh, expertly and with great panache. <laughs> I'm sure I don't know that he'd call it panache, but uh, but with great um, enthusiasm. But let, let's get back to which your
1: very dangerous. It is very dangerous. I'm worried about you It's outside of. I mean, obviously, I am a democratic. You know operative who cares deeply about the democratic party but you know what i care about the country more yeah and that seems to be getting lost and and this president has really really driven into these divides uh and it's it is shaking us yeah. to the core and in, i think that's ways, what we're we seeing. haven't really no seen. I, I think that's i yeah. think i surely haven't seen yeah. it yeah. i will say that i i have never seen anything like this and as I travel around the country and we see, particularly for Emily's list, this wave of women who are coming into the political process. For us, it's women saying they want to run for office, but on the ground, it's women marching and organizing and and pulling their communities together together. This is not the direction they want to go. Yeah. They believe in community. They believe in family. They believe in bringing people together, and they're really, really afraid. But they're going to take action, and that's what's so powerful. Uh, but this is like we need—we need sixty, seventy percent of the population to take action now. Yeah. Like, which can't be just fifty at this right. point. We got to go. This is a—we got to save our democracy.
2: I want to get to all of that. I don't want to—I don't want to lose track of your own. Uh, no, story. Know. So I want to go back to Butte for a second. Tell me what Butte was like, uh, because yeah. there was a there was a there was labor activism oh, yeah. in in Butte when you were growing up, and you must have been exposed to that.
1: Yeah, I always say, folks were like, well, how did you end up being a Democrat when? You know, your parents weren't all that involved in politics. And I said, you gotta understand, I grew up in Butte, Montana. It's like you're stewed in a democratic working class labor, you know, pot. Like this is it's everywhere. And you really did, even if it wasn't said to you directly, it was sort of understood that you were either with the company. Or you were with the worker and that was it and my my parents even though they did not work um, the
2: the big company that was atlantic richfield yes which
1: um like early in the early 1900s was known as the anaconda copper mining company and then of course got bought up um by um richfield and just you know of course got bought by a number of entities This is a copper mining town, and it was so significant uh, in the early 1900s, late 1800s, early 1900s, obviously way before my time, uh, that I tell folks out east. Yeah, of course. (laughs) Everybody, nobody remembers there. Uh, When you think of all the phones, I always tell people, there used to be these phones that are attached to the wall in your house that you would pick up. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Remember those? Yes, some of us remember this. Some of you may not. There actually were phones in the house and all those phone lines that connected all those houses and all of the business all took copper. And out east, almost all that copper came out of Butte, Montana. Like that's how big and powerful that copper mine was in Butte, Montana. And the wars that happened between the Anaconda Copper Company and the unions and the organizing was I mean, historic. I mean, there's entire union movements and, and rules that came out of the fights in the in the copper mines in Butte. They were all shaft mines back then, and then in the, uh, well, I want to say early 50s, it became a big open pit mine. Now it's a big super fun site. Yeah. Oops, we didn't do well on that front. They, um, so there, that's why. So but that's there like was Butte. a lot of
2: labor unrest in the 80s.
1: Yes, yes. And uh, I mean, I remember when... You know, the workers went on strike once again of, you know, I mean, this is tough life. I mean, working in a mine uh, at the time, this was an open pit. They were driving these gigantic, I mean, if you can envision it, these gigantic dump trucks on these tiny little roads. It was so unsafe. And they go driving down to the bottom of this pit and get the cop around and then drive back. And they're, you know, fighting for better working conditions, better pay of uh, and that year, you know, in the early '80s, they went on strike, and the strike went on for a long.
2: And you must have long, gone to school with a lot of I the children did. of mine workers who
1: are either mine workers or affiliate. You know, so many of those jobs in town were affiliated with the mine, mm-hmm. and so all of a sudden you could feel everybody doing that. And my my parents were like, well, do you, do we the, we did the one thing we could do, which was you know, make some casseroles and bring them over to the union halls and just try to support the families because, of course, nobody was getting paid. Uh, this, this went on for over a half a year. That's mm. a long strike.
2: And what did you take and away then, from well, it? Well, I want to
1: say one last thing. Yeah. They closed that mine.
2: Mm.
1: And then they busted the union. And that's what I remember. I remember when they closed that mine. Now, I also know they closed the mine because copper prices collapsed at the same time. But as a, as a kid, I saw that company knock out those families, and there was that was it. They had nowhere to go, and the town went from thirty-six thousand to about twenty-four thousand today. And it all started right there in front of me. And I just realized, like, you have to care about the the working people. They have to have jobs, and if you can just knock it out that fast, that is how powerful. You know those companies can be, then we've got to do something about it. So
2: that's yeah. where and I come you from. And add to it, you know what technology globalization is doing. Absolutely, and there are there's a lot of change going on, and there's yes. an opportunity for people who are well positioned. And if you're not well positioned, it's completely yeah. disruptive. You made a decision pretty quickly that you were going. To pursue politics, I mean that was a conscious career choice of yours.
1: It was, it was, and I always, I always believed in, and still do today, uh, believe in the power of good. People getting elected and doing good things, and if you get the right people elected, you can make some real change. Yeah, you know all of uh, the comp- well, all know, the comp- right, that. and yes, you do, yeah. and you have. And look I mean, I'm looking at what you've the done in and- politics <laughs> here. That right. the
2: whole thing is premised on the notion that right. you can, in a democracy well, that that there's real power that's
1: right. in that. And look at and and look at what happens when you do have good people in there. You know, it's you know, it gets lost because the coverage is so often the the mess of the big thing that they're trying to get done—that everybody forgets to look at—all of this, There's a thousand small things that get done every day, yeah, everywhere, um, including in Congress. And yeah. people forget that, and we have to remind them. As I, you know, I've you know, recruited a lot of candidates over the years, and now, of course, a lot of women candidates. You know, and sometimes the question is like, "What? I'm not going to get thing done. I'm just going to sit there and get beat up." And I said, "You know." It's just not true. And I, I tell the story, if I may, about uh, working as Senator John Tester's chief of staff. Yes. Which was such an honor. And
2: Senator from Montana. From Montana.
1: I was his campaign manager. I finally, After all my years of politics, I finally actually got to do a race in Montana uh, in 2006. He won, and I became his chief of staff. And I'll never forget, he was doing... I mean, he's a huge champion of veterans, and Montana is the, uh, was, and I believe still is, the second highest uh, per capita number of veterans in the country, so it's a big, important deal. And he was doing a series of town halls, and he ran into a veteran who said, you're not going to believe this, but I can't afford to get to the VA hospital. At the time, there's only one in Montana, and Montana's a big state, because yes. uh, I can't afford the gas, and there, it, I only get 11 cents a mile reimbursement. And the senator called, and he said, "Do you think this is true?" I'm like, "Oh, that can't be true. Eleven cents a mile? Like that doesn't get you anywhere." You know, and at the time, I think the the federal level was what forty six cents probably. And I mean, even for those, and this is low too. Meaning, but for, even for federal workers. For federal workers, right? Place, yeah. Right. Thank mm-hmm. you. Uh, and you know, these are folks that had you know had to get there. We're like, well, we got to change that. Now, this is not some big national bill that's going to be covered yeah. on CNN, right. right? But he sat down, he rolled up his sleeve, he talked to a number of other colleagues. He's like, how do I get this done? And they're like, well, let's let's see if we can push it through. And it it took a little bit of time, but not only did he get it to 23 cents, but I think he ultimately got it to the level of what a federal employee would get, which is what our veterans deserve. Right. But he did that and he made that change for every veteran yeah. in the country right like, those are the things that we don't talk about and they
2: happen all the time all and there the are time. also the, the there's the ability to do things for people individually yes you know who just have problems and they need someone Absolutely. to help them solve them I, no i look i'm not uh i'm not cynical about yeah. the value of serving in public office I'm, but i just know that it's a hard sell uh to some these days now we're going to get to the fact that there are a whole lot of people who are raising their hand right now and saying they want to. But you uh, uh, you bounced around and you did a number of campaigns at a very young age, uh, some as a finance director, mm-hmm. some as a manager. Yeah. Uh, what? What? Tell me just what were the ones that stand out in your mind that were formative for you?
1: Uh, I always feel like my journey, every step of – the way you probably feel like this too led me to the next mm-hmm. thing, or Absolutely. like it's just all tied together. And I, I tell particularly uh, up and coming, you know, young folks who want to do this, I'm like, just keep going. You know, the one thing I tell everybody is just say yes when the opportunity comes up. If you can say yes, don't give it a second thought. Just go, pack up your car and go, or or move, or do whatever. But I would say, uh, you know, I the, my first paying job. <laughs> big deal in in campaigns, I got paid, Uh, was working for Mary Reeder in Minnesota. She was running for Congress in 1996.
2: Gil Gutnick? Uh,
1: It was against Gil Gutnick. And uh, I actually had convinced her that I should be her scheduler because I thought, oh, I'll learn everything about the campaign that way because everything has to go through a scheduler. Little did I know then that that is one of the hardest jobs. Yeah, that's a <laughs> I tough know. Job, man. I didn't know that then. I know this now. The big My word port- you have
2: to learn is no. Right,
1: right. Yeah. Um, I did not know what I was getting myself into, and I ended up not doing it that long because I showed up on the campaign. They had just fired their finance director, and and for every student who's done an internship, hear this one: I had done an internship. At a, at a place in Washington, D.C. that doesn't even exist anymore in their development department, and they're doing fundraising, sort of. I mean, I didn't really do that much fundraising at the time. Uh, but that internship on my resume was enough for that candidate to say, would you like to be my finance director? And I, I don't know what in the world I was thinking, but I learned that lesson, which is just say yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I said yes. Yeah. And um, and that was the beginning of my fundraising career. I learned a ton. And out of all ironies, Emily's List in 1996 sent out a finance advisor to Mary Reader. To teach this punk kid, Stephanie, how to learn fundraising and how you build finance plans and how do you do call time and and sure enough, uh, we got Emily's list endorsement and that was the beginning of everything and then and then um, you yeah, know she did not win but I stuck with fundraising for a long time until I went to management.
2: I want to jump ahead in your in your uh, in your life journey, yeah. uh, to 2004, and Howard Dean, and you were the finance director for the Howard Dean campaign. Us. You know, we get a lot of credit, uh, the folks who are involved with Barack Obama, for doing innovative things. Yeah. Uh, I would be the first to say that we so much of what we did was derivative mm-hmm. of and built on uh, what Howard Dean did and what you did. Uh, especially as it relates to uh, grassroots fundraising on online on the internet, which was really pioneered in that campaign, as well as organizing uh, on the internet, organizing mm-hmm. meetups and so on. That's right. Tell me about the whole Dean experience, <laughs> because I, I think that was a... That for when you think about losing campaigns that ha- actually had an impact on American politics, I think that one was one of the big ones. And uh, you know, I know my buddy Joe Trippi was mm-hmm. in the middle of all he that. He sure was. Yeah. Um, so tell me about that experience.
1: You know, I, as I as I went into or as I came out of that presidential campaign, I asked uh, friends I'd known for a while. How long does it take to get over the loss of a presidential campaign? And they're like, at least eight years. Yeah. <laughs> and I laughed at them. That may be true. It it you know, it was so it was the campaign itself was the most amazing, crazy, thrilling, exciting, exhausting, painful, just. You just everything hurt at the end of that campaign. I've never felt as physically or emotionally exhausted than I did at the end of that campaign uh-huh. uh, because it was so high, so fast I mean folks um who may not remember so I came on so I came on that campaign in December of two thousand two. I was like one of the first 10 employees.
2: Um, when was that which when was that crazy DNC early? meeting where he gave his uh, I, I, I I want to represent I'm here to represent the democratic wing of the of democratic, democratic Party. Party.
1: Yes. Uh, it was either it was like late January early February. It was like of, right of 2003. So right after you came Right after board. I came, yeah. yeah. And it was um, like it it caught so fast and I went you know, and it was a stage in my career that I, I was I had been working at the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, you know, sort of on a establishment path. Yes. To be honest, just like a very establishment path, and uh, some folks on other presidential campaigns had talked to me about maybe joining them. There and,
2: were several establishment um, candidates. There
1: were there were a lot of establishment candidates that cycle, and I was more inclined in the fall of that year to go manage, I always wanted to manage at some point. Uh, But two things happened to me, why I sort of took that diversion to someone who was not seen as the establishment candidate. Uh, One was the Iraq war vote, which I was very upset about. Now, you've heard some of my Minnesota, like I went to school in Minnesota, I loved Paul Wellstone uh-huh. and I was so proud of Senator Wellstone and he voted, you know, he voted against that that war and I just was so angry at so many of our democrats at that moment and I was just like I don't think I can do this anymore. I can't be in this town. You know, I was like my you know, my Yeah, you know we are we're like right. I just can't do this anymore. And then we lost Paul Wellstone. Right. In a plane crash. And, and the combination of that for me was so devastating.
2: I actually think that that I, I had
1: to go. Yeah, I had to know, go to Vermont. I, mean,
2: I think that 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 was a real watershed event for a lot of people yeah. because there was a sense that a lot of Democrats cast that vote because they felt that the political winds were blowing that way, and they had to had to do it. And um, and I I think that kind of exposed something about politics that uh, I. Especially young people mm-hmm. was deeply disturbing because I think young people want to believe that you're going to go there and you're going to do what you think is right and 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 here you know clearly pe- there were people who were putting their fingers to the wind. Not everybody, you know, our own senator here, Dick Durbin, did not uh, vote right. for the that's right war. Ted Kennedy did not vote yes that way. Um there were, you know, people who didn't. Others. And Barack Obama was a young state senator. That's here. right. And he, he spoke out against the war. That's but right. um, But most did.
1: Yeah. And the scrappy governor from Vermont spoke out against the yes. war. You know, Howard Dean. And, you know, I got the call and, and they said, and, and honestly, it was so funny. He was so scrappy and had so little foundation mm-hmm. that the call I got from his consultant was, Stephanie, do you know anybody that would take this job? Yeah. <laughs> like it was like anybody do you have any suggestions? He's
2: a pugnacious fellow.
1: Yeah, and it was like and yeah. I finally was like what if I take the job and they that was it. I I was on my way to Burlington, Vermont and and what when I got there, I mean, we really had nothing. And this it was during the time nobody will remember this. I mean, I don't even remember this. Remember matching funds? Yeah. You know, yeah. so this was the last <laughs> the last era where there was a chance that a presidential candidate was actually going to accept the federal matching funds and there's a whole process to get there. You know, and and there's a spending cap. So if yes. you took the matching funds, you could only spend so much money. And I can't remember exactly how the system worked, but I knew that the maximum we could raise was like $36 million. That was the max. And, um, and so I wrote out a plan to raise $36 million. Like, that was my job, and we got to get to $36 million. And, and I asked Howard, uh, Governor Dean at the time, I said, So, you know, how much do you think he could raise? And he said, Oh, I don't know, maybe $10 million. I said, I'm not taking this job unless we're <laughs> serious about this. Like, we got to do the whole thing.
2: $10 million is a lot of money in Vermont.
1: It was a huge amount for him. He's like, Well, how are we not going to get to th- over $30 It's million? a lot of Ben and Jerry's. You know? It's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. And, and we built it. And when I got there, you know, we started. We started putting together, but we'll never forget this is how new this all was. So, there was a website and there was a link on that website to donate. And I would get these cash flow documents of income coming in. And the first two weeks, there was this one line that just had numbers, it was like an account and it had money coming in every day. And I went, Well, what is this? Where is this coming from? Oh, I don't, we don't, we don't know. I'm like, What do you mean you don't know where the money's coming from? What is this from? And it took me, this is embarrassing, but it's true. It took us a couple days to figure out it was the merchant account on the website. So nobody was getting money just over the transom on a website. I'd never seen it before. I'd done all these all this work with Senate races. I'd never seen just money over the transom. No email ask, just coming in. And that's, that's when I knew we had something yeah, really that's like, different. Uh... We didn't even have anybody managing the website at the time.
2: It's like Isaac <laughs> Newton getting hit hit on the head. <laughs> he felt like it. Yeah. I, I mean, was like
1: we got something going on here. We need help and then thankfully Joe Trippi came on board. I hired the, And Joe the, the was first, very
2: fluent in Joe very, in in, in sort goodness. of the internet. He was sort of a visionary on that.
1: Yeah, and he was and he was great and uh very very helpful and I I had always been very interested on the online fundraising and I watched MoveOn Move on, uh, you know, came up in well, came up during the impeachment hearings of Bill Clinton. That's that's what Move On started. It was Move On from the impeachment hearings, and then after that, in two thousand, they decided to support a couple of candidates uh, who had defended Bill Clinton in the Senate. Um, Or no, excuse me, who had who had gone against him? That's what it was. And so they did some fundraising, and it worked online. Yes, and we'd never seen that really before. So I had been watching this and really interested in how it was working, but I did not. I was not in this in the language of it yet, like Joe was, which was why but, it was such but, a good and then I I,
2: I remember because I was working for another campaign at the time, uh, and when your fundraising just exploded. Mm. And it was it like was a wild. lightning bolt of oh, Washington was shaken. I forget what your June filing was, but it was... Uh, 7.6. Yeah, it was big. And then in the fall... <laughs> For that time, and then, which that was now big. doesn't
1: sound big, I know. Well, John
2: but, Edwards raised 7.6, I think, in his first, in his first, first, first filing. And everybody said, oh, a, my God, that's a huge sum it of was money. a huge number. And all of a sudden, here's Howard Dean, and he's doing it all in these small...
1: It was all small increments, and and it was small increments from everywhere. It was online. It was direct mail. It was telemarketing. We were doing these these event, these meetups, we called them yes. where or people are organizing, but they're also making small contributions. I used to call them pay to rally. They do rallies and they would just all make contributions. I'm like, this is like a pay to rally. You just yeah. do that. And we did all these other events too. Everything was on fire. But the, the June 30th of which i'm sure like many remember on other campaigns cuz i hear about it still today. Yes. Like we at the Dean campaign decided to go live with how much money we were raising yes. online.
2: So you raised this money and he took off and you know in the fall of 2004 uh, of 3 in Iowa um he was the man to beat. Yes he was. Uh, and it really, I, I won't name who, but someone, I was in another campaign, as I mentioned, someone in your campaign called and said, look, this is over, Howard's going to win Iowa, and I want to talk to you about how this is going to go after, and so on. And I mean, that's how certain people felt uh, about this. W- what happened? Was, was, were, were you, was the campaign, and was he prepared for being shot out of a cannon?
1: No, no, nobody was prepared for what happened. Uh, You know, the explosion happened over the summer. I mean, June was sort of the beginning of that. Uh, That July, he was on, he had full covers on two of the three big news magazines, uh, which was a huge deal. Uh, particularly, then uh, the next quarter we we raised nearly 15 million dollars, yeah. which surpassed the most amount any presidential campaign had ever raised in a quarter by four amazing. million.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, but there was also a lot of shakiness going on in the campaign because what what we had like awesome good people, but very green. Uh, outside yeah. of a couple of us and you know Joe Trippi but if you went like under, one step under yeah. we're talking folks who these are first campaigns well, like we, or just like you start yeah. thinking about at one point, I remember um, sitting with Joe and saying, When when do the people come to help us? Like, we were like, sort of like, they're coming, right? Because yeah. we're leading and it's time for some of the more established people who do these races. I mean, I even felt like that as a finance director, I'd never been a finance director for presidential campaign. It was working. Uh, it was like, they're going to come soon, right? I mean, there was sort of a sense of, I'm not sure we can hold this together. It's it's
2: the old story that your strength is your weakness and your weakness is your strength. There was a beautiful sort of purity to the Dean campaign, uh, but there also was a lack of experience.
1: Yes, And, and you have to have, I mean, I think you just have to have, Both of those things, you need some experienced hands, but you need the energy of youth and newness uh, to make those work. And one of the things we also did, and it's a failing of, I, I take personal responsibility. I hope others do as well. We ran our guy into the ground I mean, Mm. we really, you know, it was one of the lessons I walked away with. I walked with many, but you cannot exhaust your candidate. And we exhausted him. It was just exhausting. Nobody was thinking clearly and everybody, no one was sleeping. Uh, And the pressure, and and you know this better than anybody because you've done, you know, a handful of these presidential campaigns. The pressure of a presidential campaign itself the recognition that once you're the front runner, you had not even really thought about being yeah. president. And all of a sudden, it, it's not its not every, a house race, every, right? Every, it everything is Everything you real. say,
2: it's like nothing else.
1: It's like nothing no, this else. Is, this the weight of the important world important is lesson. on you know, your you've got, shoulders. I,
2: we've got, you know, probably about six million Democrats planning to run for president now. <laughs> and no one really uh, knows, or very few, some of them have run before, what this is like. But- the better you do the harder it gets it's like a uh, pole vaulting you know you clear the yeah. bar and the bar gets raised and that's right um and you know no i think there was a clear sense that um and, and by the way it's worse today than ever because of social media Correct. and uh, cable and uh, at the ferocity the cable runs today and um you know, the pace. And, uh, you know, so you're con- you are constantly under a microscope and everything you say can be consequential. And it's a it's a but of course, that's true of the presidency um, as well. I, yes. I want to
1: I mean, you know, Trippi always said, uh, the thing about the presidential primaries and the presidential election is that if you survive it, you get to be president? Yes. And it, and most don't survive the pro- the process itself makes the president. I believe that's and I think that's true. That's yeah. absolutely true. And I that it's so because nobody knows, nobody who's going to run. Now
2: we well, you know a, we've had a perverse sort of test of this because you got a guy who is seems impervious to any uh, concerns about the impacts of what he says, right. and therefore. He was willing to say anything that he thought might be marketable, and um, that has its own issues. So he's in a special category. Yes. Yeah, uh, but uh, let let me let me ask you about you. You managed the Tester race, as you said, which was a great win for for uh, the Democratic Party. And John Tester is a is a wonderful guy, he sure just is. A, as decent a person as you'll find in in that mm-hmm. in that Congress. Um, um, Farmer, Still missing farming. missing three Still, fingers. Yes, he is. From, flat uh, from, top, from, from, got the flat got top. Got the flat top, but just, just the best, yeah. the best guy. Absolutely. Um, in 2008, they sent you in to uh, save Al Franken, who was had a very tough race. Yeah, he did. Uh, then, um, I, you know, I think he he wrote about this. Uh, partly blames us for it. <laughs> because uh, w- uh, we didn't exactly ride to his rescue yeah. in that campaign, uh, which was a mistake. Uh, Say so would have saved everybody a lot of saved, time and it money. It would have saved about. Because Al Franken it, didn't get it, seated. Yeah, it would have, for yeah. six months.
1: Right, and, and you know, folks asked me because you know, the the point of that is we were, we all believe that if the Obama for America plane had landed at the last weekend in Minnesota. Uh, that we would have just gotten the few extra votes we needed, um, and that didn't happen. It landed in Iowa instead, and uh, you, you got to make your decisions. Uh, but I do remind people what that cost. You know, yeah. One, you know, simply, you know, it cost twelve million dollars of Democratic money to get through the recount and the trial and everything. He didn't get seated. But what it really cost was a huge cut in the stimulus package yes. yeah. because you needed another vote. Right. And you, got, you had to get Olympia Snow. Right. And to get Olympia Snow, there if I remember correctly, there was a hundreds of millions of dollars cut out of that yeah. stimulus package. I, mean, I can't
2: remember whether it was Snow or Collins. I can't either, that. and I
1: apologize. I don't but, remember. But, but, but,
2: you know, there was Senator Nelson, who was a Democrat, also was uh, on the same uh, program. But there's no doubt that that was a consequential yeah. Uh, thing not having uh not having uh Franken in the Senate at that time. So I can't bring him up yeah. without talking not just about the way he got to the Senate, but yeah. the way he left the Senate. And I've said, you know, candidly, uh, that um uh you shouldn't say that about yourself. That's never good when you say <laughs> I said candidly. Well what about the rest of the time? Are you right. are you not candid? <laughs> but I've said I uh yeah you know, I really I regret what happened to him because um, what he was asking for was a hearing. He never got the hearing. Yeah. I felt like uh, he was collateral damage uh, f- uh, in in pursuit of the Alabama Senate seat because he was an inconvenient problem for Democrats as they were heading into this race against Roy Moore. Um, and uh, it, uh, I think it was unfair. I think it was unfair. But... Uh, I, I wanna ask you because of the position you hold and you know you're you're right there and yeah. the Me Too movement is driving a lot of our politics right now right. And, and, and driving a lot of candidacies and a lot of energy and I think in a positive way. That's right. But in this case, it, it feels like it was uh, politics run amuck a little bit.
1: You know, it was it was such a painful time. For everybody involved, and I think that's that's important to note here. It ended up being a perfect storm that we we just nobody could pull him out of, and that is incredibly frustrating. Uh, what I, what I will say, I, he was never going to do anything that wasn't going to help the people of Minnesota, and it, when it became. Clearer and clearer, um, particularly when the senator started calling for his resignation. That he was he was going to have a hard time doing his work, and he loves loves Minnesota, and and would not did not want to do anything to to hurt or damage uh, the people there. But I the the moment itself, it's so important that we. That women feel like they can, can tell their story and we need to listen. And that's what Me Too is about, right? We, and, and thank goodness, because it's been you know, thousands of years where women haven't been yes, listened to absolutely, at all, right? Absolutely. Um, and, and they do need to be listened to and they need to be taken seriously. And that's, that's really important. Uh, we also need to have processes in place, to To figure out like what should be done and what the ramification of a situation should be, and what the problem I feel like was in Congress, and by the way, still is today, is that there's no clear process.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like th- there was no immediate ethics committee hearing, mm-hmm. there was no immediate. Uh, conversation about what to do next there's no hr human resources department really in the in these institutions in congress and and so there's just no no one really knew what it was going to happen in a real way and yes there's gonna be an ethics committee but it was gonna be six months later and that wasn't good enough for that moment and you're right then there was roy moore just staring there like heavy duty parties had you you know the
2: republican party had an interest in stringing the franken thing out Democratic Party had an interest in cutting it short. The more thing was coming down, and, and, right. and within days of
1: well, and you had and you had more women coming out, right? You know, saying they'd had these, un, you know, these not pleasant experiences with with the senator who before he was in the Senate. By the way, right. none, none of it was during the Senate, and you know, and so it was just an incredibly frustrating moment. The other frustrating part Um, because I am heartbroken over the whole thing. The odd thing about it was
2: he apologized, and uh, not that that that, that, should—that alone was not— that's not a, like, pass to get out of what you— but it seemed like, you know, he was earnestly trying to address this, and uh, the the people who were denying what they had done were getting a pass. Now, Roy Moore ultimately didn't get a pass, but you do have— you know it's still accusers um in the White House in the, yeah, exactly to you, be you, blunt <laughs> right right exactly, so I mean no, it was awful, but know, the so, other thing
1: that was happening though and i, I and I want to speak um to this because it was really hard, particularly the women in the Senate were looked upon as like as the leaders like what what are we supposed to do, and the I, the press and everybody was on them every single day, and then you had so there's that you know so you know when you start just building up the pressure and the pressure's building building building, and we had and understandably particularly young women it's a generational difference we have found um, on what should be the punishment, but younger women are like done. They're done. They can't even believe we're dealing with this stuff anymore. And so you'd walk into your office and look at your fabulous young staff who's working so hard for you. And they're all looking back at you going, why is this guy still here? And that was real. And that happens all the time. So this is such a complicated moment. And it's so important for us as we move forward. We've got to get clear processes in place for, you know, whether it's – if we can't get them in place in Congress, what is the, the waitress at the diner going to do? Like, mm-hmm. we have got such gigantic problems across this country with sexual harassment uh, in the workplace, and, like, to, we got to start dealing with it right in Congress – first, and then start putting in, there are things we can do in this country to help women and, and have these conversations. So we've got to start doing it. And I really hope to see that Congress, and I don't even know why this would be a partisan thing. I don't understand why all of the leaders don't get together and go, you know what, there seems to be, there seems to be incidences on both sides. We just got to fix this. Why, why can't we do that?
2: I have to ask you about Hillary Clinton. We, we met... Uh, at one point and talked about her. And I know that you were someone who people thought of as a potential manager of that campaign. And I know you were invested in it. Uh, What happened in that campaign? I mean, I know what happened. I know, but, you know, it's not good enough to me to say Russians, Comey, and all of that, all Mm -hmm. of which were... But as a campaign professional, what was your analysis of what happened?
1: Well, I think you've got to start with what we were going into Uh, early. forget, Forget about Donald Trump. When that campaign started, it was clear to us at Emily's List that we had an uphill battle because it was a change environment. Yes. We just had eight years of right. a democratic incumbent. That easy to like, elect
2: a party. For it a is third really term.
1: hard to elect a party for a third term. It can be done, um, but that is that. So first off, we knew we were going into that environment. We knew in our polling at Emily's List that millennials, uh, the millennial vote, wasn't all that excited about. Didn't really know her to be honest. Like just which is so hard for you and me we all know her right mm-hmm. they, they knew some things about her but they do, there wasn't sort of a, a fully rounded picture of who Hillary was so that that was a problem we knew that early on uh, and so you got those things oh and by the way we've never elected a woman as president so we don't have any idea really deep down how folks are gonna feel about that you know so that was sort of the 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 beginning so that's the beginning challenges. And then you know and then we've got uh you know what I would say was you know a constant, constant beating on you know the emails in Benghazi and and I often said Particularly when we got to the general election, it's like it's like every day it's the same. You know, two or three things against Hillary Clinton. It's the same. Boom, boom, boom. Donald Trump. There's twenty terrible things to talk about with him today, but no, but there's so many that nobody can focus on one. I still think that's the prop. That he's brilliant at that. Yeah. I think if we could all stick to one thing,
2: <laughs> yeah. So a lot so of fires, that's for sure.
1: it's amazing. He really does, and and so that was not helpful. I'm not sure what I would have done. Uh, to try to alleviate that situation, we, you know, did she? Maybe she needed to have more things bad happen, right? <laughs> maybe she needed to have twenty, like Donald Trump, and only had. Well, three. let me ask you a few questions. But there is sort of a like, funny you think dynamic about, your, your, your about that. Your
2: neighbors in Montana, or yeah. my neighbors in rural Michigan, and so on. What? What? It felt to me like there was too much reliance on this sort of demographic, mm. you know, uh, uh, theory that. You know, if we got that the women, that young people, oh, that yeah. that minorities, I... and that, and and so there were emph- there's an emphasis on these issues to try and galvanize the base, right? And the and it made it easy for Trump to say, you know, they don't care about you, you they disdain you, the deplorables, and so on. Um, and it seems to me that's, that was yeah. a mistake. And the reason I raise it is because we're going into another campaign. We are. And it goes back to the issue we talked about at the beginning, which is,
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, are we going to run, uh, you know, are we going to see a campaign? Are Democrats going to run a campaign that uh, speaks to a big, diverse country? Or are, 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 are they going to play a sort of demographic roulette again?
1: We have, in my opinion, to win a presidential campaign. You need to find a way to bring the country together, with, and and with some excitement or joy or hope, which you did so well with President Obama. Uh, folks are looking to be together. I've always believed. I think Americans want to be together. And so finding ways to bring us all together is the most important thing. And so I do worry about playing, as you called it, the geographic. We can't be like this niche group and then this group and this group and this group. Like There is more that unites us. And we make a mistake by not using... Uh, a vision that unites us together as Americans. There's a set of values, and I think they are Democratic Party values that, that extend into independence and, and a lot of Republicans. Maybe not all, maybe not like the core base of Trump, but a lot that's like every single American deserves an opportunity. To earn a good living, mm-hmm. to have a good seems living, seems like a unifying thing. It does seem like a unifying, and it's and then to have and to believe it, and that, I think that's really well, important. Well, I think I think and it's also I, important know, to
2: recognize that you need some solid, big, solid ideas about what that means in a time when we have this dramatic yes. change in our economy yes. and so on. So, 2018, yeah, uh, we've seen this absolute, you know avalanche of women uh, uh, you know uh, uh Avalanche is probably the wrong because they're moving <laughs> forward, but just a, a stampede is the. If you think, is the, yeah, so if you think about of stampede. an avalanche
1: as I like avalanche, not because sometimes it sounds dangerous and it is, avalanches are dangerous. But what's so powerful about an avalanche is it gets bigger as it goes down. That is what's happening. It is getting bigger as we keep moving away. Like this, like it's it's just growing and growing every day. Uh, Give the stats on how amazing. many women
2: are running for Congress this year as opposed to uh, past years. You must have that in the top of your head. You
1: know, there are hundreds of women. There are hundreds of women uh, running for the House right now uh, across the country. I mean, I think the most... I mean, we're still filing deadlines. We don't even know yet how many. Uh, Emily's List is actively involved uh, in races of over 70 now. And these are like key races that are going to swing over. I said to Leader Pelosi... I would like Emily's List to help deliver the majority by delivering the majority. We'd like to elect 23 women in pickup seats to give you the majority. Some good men can win too. And there are some good ones. Thank Mm -hmm. you, Connor Lamb. I'm thrilled that you're here. Jason Groh in Colorado, great job. Like there's some greatly good men. We really feel like there is an opportunity here to pick up 23 seats, maybe some more, with women and what that would do to the caucus, but it's so much larger than the House. I mean, that's an important piece of it. I mean, we have a historic number of women running for governor now across the country, in legislative and seats. the legislative mm-hmm. seats, and it underneath in Virginia. it, huge historic numbers. We're seeing that as filing deadlines close over and over and over again. We're on the ground doing some of the recruitment. Sort of, it's almost like trying to get folks in the right places at the right time. Well, this it's is almost, an issue because it's like. I don't even know do we're like want- trying to put boundaries on it. We're just like, everybody needs to go. And yeah, we've got more primaries than we've ever had. I'm fine with that. I think it's great.
2: I don't want to close on a negative note, but... You know every every great thing has its 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 potential challenges, too. I, I remember when Emily's list was started by Ellen Malcolm, and yeah, the was. goal was to try and get women to run for office. Now you have this stampede or avalanche <laughs> or whatever you want to call it of women running for office. Uh, and you have this situation. We just saw it here in the Illinois primary, and there's a suburban district here, Illinois eight, where I think there are four or five women running. Uh, and uh, none of them won uh, because uh, they diluted each other's strength. Um, And you've got, you know, you have other districts. I think the uh, 10th District in Virginia, which is a very competitive district, has a lot of, uh, a number of women running. Um, I want to be parochial because men run against each other all the time.
1: For hundreds of years.
2: But, uh, but. (laughs) Literally for hundreds of years. but, But, but. Emily's List, one of the strengths of it has been that is to sort of channel resources mm-hmm. behind f- female candidates. So this is a whole new thing. It is. And are you concerned about more situations like the one we saw in Illinois and also in California where they have this jungle ballot uh, where mm. so many Democrats run in a district that uh, you're going to see Republicans slide into the general election who otherwise wouldn't have gotten into the general
1: of uh, the California thing's a little bit different. I can address that too, but this, this is what I would say. I mean, I think this is all in all a good thing. Uh, we have been waiting and waiting for this many women to say, "Yes, I want to run." Uh, and we're winning a lot of races. I mean, you look at those Virginia delegate races, Democrats picked up 15 seats. 11 of yeah. them were emily's list women who won those seats uh you know i, I one of the uh, news outlets a couple weeks ago said with more women running there'll be more women losing i'm like y- really yeah that is true just like there's so many men who lose when they run as well but there will also be a lot more winning and mm-hmm. that's how it should be there's no reason why there isn't isn't a woman in every race in the country period right i mean there are, there are for the most part men in every race So there should be women our challenge is to you know marshal our resources to get the most advantage out of of the numbers like we want to see a historic number of women in the u.s house we want to see them in the legislatures how do we best do that in some cases we make hard decisions to go in with one woman over another woman we're very careful when we do it we look at viability we look at personal story we'll look at strength i think
2: you did that in that illinois race didn't you we I did yes. we
1: did um uh well in third in um yeah they- in kelly Mazeski's race of right. uh, and, and try to get her there, and she was a close second, and we, it just didn't quite work. Uh, on the other hand, Lauren Underwood in Illinois, 14, uh, actually had the opposite situation. She was one woman. There were five men. And right. She won, and she won by a lot, right. a lot. Uh, so we're seeing a little bit of a mix on these. That's okay. Uh, we've got more opportunity to win, and that's, that's going to work. And uh, I'm really excited about this moment, because this isn't just about 18. Yeah. This is going to be the next decade's. Of leadership well, in maybe country. it's
2: about our country maturing. I hope so. Uh, to the point where men and women are fighting it out on, on an equal plane.
1: It's way beyond time for that.
2: It is, Stephanie Shriak. It's great to have you here.
1: Great, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of the Axe Files, visit cnn.com/podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.